0: Hello, and welcome to Carbon Matters, a podcast journey in which we seek to explore and inform on topics related to carbon removal and the crucial role it could play in tackling climate change. So, Amy, thank you very much for joining us. Um, this is a Carbon Matters podcast by the Centre for Carbon Removal, and today we'll be looking into the opportunities for direct air capture for removing greenhouse gas emissions from the atmosphere. So the Carbon Removal Centre is a centre that is founded on a network of interested individuals. Uh, Our aim is to improve the dialogue around emissions removal and to try and narrate the space in such a way that we move forward and build a a positive um, market and emissions removal space. So without further ado, we know that direct air capture is uh, spoken about as a, a key emissions removal technology. So I would like to invite Amy to um, introduce yourself and uh, how you came into the emissions removal space.
1: Yeah, thank you very much for having me today. It's, um, it's, it's a pleasure to be sharing my experience with you. Um, I'm Amy Ruddock, I'm VP of Europe for Carbon Engineering. We're a company that does direct air capture. Um, my, my journey into the space is from a passion to decarbonise aviation before I was in direct air capture, I was um, at an airline uh, where I looked after corporate development and sustainability. And then prior to that, I spent 10 years in consulting in aviation. Uh, way back when, um, I did a PhD um, in chemical physics, and I think it all came together with direct air capture. I, uh, I realised that this is a difficult problem to solve. How do you uh get to net zero uh, from aviation. I did a lot of research into the space and for me two important areas popped up, sustainable aviation fuels and permanent carbon removals, of which direct air capture is one. So for me, I thought this is what I want to get involved in and luckily direct air capture brought me to both, both the ability to do the sustainable aviation fuels and those permanent removals.
0: Brilliant, thank you very much. Sir. Our our starter question um, and I'm a a, a political economist uh, in the emissions removal space trying to think about how best to either subsidise or regulate or develop a carbon market. Um, So as a non-specialist would you mind explaining exactly how we strip uh, greenhouse gases out of the atmosphere with one of these amazing boxes?
1: Yeah I I think I'd start with direct air capture is one of the tools in the toolkit um, for addressing climate change. There are many that I'm sure you and your listeners have heard of, but Direct Air Capture specifically is about taking that CO2 at the 420, um, whatever number we're going up to, parts per million, um, out of the atmosphere. We, we do that by, first of all, deploying large fans. Those large fans pull in the atmospheric air and within that they're reacting with a solvent we use potassium hydroxide there are different methods out there used but used by different companies but we're using this commodity solvent potassium hydroxide and then what's happening afterwards is really the kind of chemistry that you would have done at senior school we're using that solvent as a sponge we're soaking up the co2 and then right at the end we wring it out the co2 comes off um, and, and we capture that carbon dioxide And by that point, it's a concentrated stream. So we've gone from 420 parts per million. You can think about that as sort of a drop of ink in an Olympic-sized swimming pool. And by the end, we're at 99.999% purity of CO2. And that's effectively what that process is doing. Um, When when you get to the end, you have a question about what you do with that CO2. Uh, You can either Sequester it deep underground, create a negative emission, um, effectively remove um, the emissions that are put, being put into the atmosphere, or you can use it to create products.
0: Brilliant, thank you very much. And uh, for, for listeners who didn't see the, the face of fear when you said chemistry at senior school, that's the moment that you decided I'm going to tell them it's a sponge. Um, which is, <laughs> no, it's very helpful because um, it's it's not a it's not a vastly complicated chemical process, but it is one that requires some careful management. So I wonder if you could just focus on on the moment of um, concentrating CO2 from an atmospheric um, dilution to uh, this 99%. What, what's what's actually going on there?
1: Yeah, we're effectively doing it in our process through a series of chemical reactions. Um, so we have this solvent, potassium hydroxide. We have two closed chemical loops. And through those loops, we are we're creating a salt, potassium um, carbonate uh, with that reaction. And then we we exchange that with calcium. I am getting into the, the senior school chemistry now. But when you exchange it with calcium, you have a calcium carbonate, calcium carbonate. Think of it as chalk. Think of it as shells. That calcium carbonate, you then heat up, carbon dioxide comes up. Um because we've got closed chemical loops, we're then using water within the system to regenerate those solvents so by the, the end you by the end of our process, you're regenerating that potassium hydroxide um which is ready to react with the next batch of c o two that comes into the process.
0: I hear closed loops and I hear regenerative so you know I immediately like these I assume that in in a life you know I assume that this is not a process where um it's vastly dependent on a large throughput of chemicals, um, and I've done a, a little bit of research to recognise that it isn't, but one of the inputs that is required is energy, and um, what I wanted you to uh, reflect on is, is what, ca- what type of energy is used, what's the energy demand of direct air capture currently, how can you see it improving, yeah. that kind of thing.
1: Yeah, so I think Great research. Uh, When you looked at the regeneration, that's true. Um, We have very little makeup because we're regenerating during the process and actually potassium hydroxide is a commodity chemical. It's a byproduct of other industries, so it's it's readily available. Um, So you point to the need for energy. Yes, direct air capture needs energy in the system. Uh, I think it's it's useful to refer to a study done by McKinsey. So, McKinsey were working with the Coalition of Negative Emissions. The coalition is a um, is buyers and suppliers um, coming together, and they looked across technologies and they saw that the energy demand across these technologies is two to three megawatt hours per ton of CO2. I'm not sure that means a lot to most people, so I'll, I'll, I'll convert that to power. And I'll say that in the UK, the planned offshore wind capacity um, for the UK by 2050, it is around 40 gigawatts. How much direct air capture could that power? It would be about 120 megatons or 120 million, uh, million tons of CO2.
0: Thank you, that's brilliant. And uh, that is. thank you for straying somewhat into my area, so I can sound knowledgeable as well. Um, One of the things that strikes me about direct air capture is because it's unlinked to other demands, uh, or at least straight away like uh, BEX or other technologies that are servicing the wholesale energy market, that you can do at any time. So you can do it in the middle of the night when it's blowing a gale out in the North Sea, and you can have nice low carbon electricity to run the process. It might not be a process for example that you would run 7.30 in the evening on a winter's evening when um, electricity is expensive and it's also got a relatively higher carbon content. So that leads me to my next question and if we're straying too far into the engineering just tell me, um, but is this a process that needs to run continuously or can it be ramped up and down, is it something that you switch off switch on again, how what, How does that plant operate, does it like it if you do that to it? Yeah so I, I think
1: my answer to that would be any anything is possible right but the economics will mm-hmm. rule and these are large infrastructure projects which means there is a lot of capital expenditure now when you have investors putting that capex in they're looking for a good rate of return how do you get a good rate of return it tends to be you maximize the usage so y- where it is theoretically possible to follow that load balancing sometimes the the economics might not work out that way so th- there are opportunities within our technology within other technologies to to somewhat um go up and down in your energy usage and i say somewhat it depends but it depends by technology but i but i think you need to do the full techno economics and see does that make sense can you still make this, this economic Mm.
0: Yeah, I mean, from again, from my research, what, what struck me is that um, one of the things that people talk about in terms of nuclear is it's difficult to turn up and down. It, it <laughs> doesn't like doing it. Nuclear engineers would really rather you didn't. Um, but in terms of direct air capture, if the economics are what's important, often, and I don't, I don't know if this is going to change, but certainly right now, the cheapest electricity is the, low, the most low carbon. So, it would, you know, it would make economic sense for any plant that could turn up, turn down. Uh, Demand, uh, this isn't generation, but to turn up and turn down demand, uh, that could A, be a cheaper way of running it, um, B, a lower carbon way of running it, and C, certainly something that would uh, contribute to the economics of the project. So uh, coming from the energy space, having a large load that you can switch on um, and soak up some demand in a a long system would be something that would be very positive.
1: And, and I don't want to get too much into the detail of different processes, but I think the the opportunity differs depending on what you're talking about the usage of the CO2. Mm-hmm. So uh, particularly where you have um, where you're creating these drop-in compatible products through taking the CO2 and converting them there is a lot lot of opportunity, I think, in those hydrogen steps. So, dropping compatible aviation fuel could combine direct air-captured CO2 with green hydrogen.
2: Um, can particularly we, can we, in there, there's,
1: uh, there's
0: opportunities. You said something that I wanted to pick up later, but you've, you've brought it up now, so uh, let's go for it. So, one of the one of the real challenges and terrible things about climate change is um, all of those who are kind of well into looking after the planet also like to visit different parts of it, which means flying sometimes. Um, And the promise of uh, a zero carbon aviation fuel on the carbon engineering website sort of piques my interest, but then my chemistry did get lost. So I wonder if you could just narrate for us how uh, direct air capture can produce um, low carbon aviation fuels.
1: Yes, so I, I talked about our process of capturing the CO2 and the product that comes out extremely, extremely pure CO2. When you're flying, In an aeroplane, the fuel that you're powering it with is is kerosene, and it's effectively carbon and hydrogen. So, we have the carbon from the carbon dioxide, we want the hydrogen. So, green hydrogen can be produced um, through a a process called electrolysis. Um, You use water, you have hydrogen um, molecules that emerge from that, combine them with the CO2 molecules. There are different ways you can do that. there's processes we're working with called Fischer tropsch called alcohol jet, um, but you combine them and you're, you're creating a drop-in compatible kerosene. So effectively it's the same molecule that's being used today. Um, today it's being used from a fossil fuel source. Um, we're talking about creating it synthetically. Um, but that I, I, I talked about the, the different tools in the climate toolbox if we take our co2 and we sequester it underground and create that negative emission um it, it, it's that it's a negative emission if we're creating dropping compatible fuels it's as close to carbon neutral as you can get it now you're never you're never going to achieve an exactly carbon neutral fuel and um, to build the plants there are embedded carbon emissions and um, to generate electricity again you can get very close to zero but you're you're building infrastructure, it's not zero. Um, but by sourcing from the air, by sourcing from that water, you, you're creating near zero um, carbon intensity of fuels, um, a closed loop again.
0: Yeah, it's very exciting. And it's um, it's certainly something that clearly relies on the, the life cycle emissions, but the kind of the story that you can uh, tell to, to get a lot to start along that journey is quite compelling. And I, I wondered if you would reflect also on what that means in terms of other low carbon, low carbon fuels for uh, aviation, because there is a trade-off, isn't there, between um, what is classified as low carbon and is currently um, manufactured through uh, biofuels, and, and what that, how that might stack up with a, a DAC to aviation fuels
2: process.
1: Yeah, I'd say generally, if if you're aiming for that. Carbon neutrality, or or as close as possible, then you want to source your carbon from the atmosphere. How you can get it from the atmosphere, you can do direct air capture that I've talked about, or you can use biological sources. So plants absorb, you then use the plants in the process. The uh, equally with with both of them, you you can radically reduce the carbon intensity. Um, There's a question of scalability though. Um, How how much land does it take to grow those biological sources? How much water is it going to take? So th- there is a limit to the scalability of those biological feedstocks. And that's where direct air capture has it's a, a, a strong um, asset a, as a solution. It, it is scalable. You're, you're looking at the air as a source. And unfortunately, there's currently too much carbon in the air. So we don't have to worry about that running out.
0: Yeah, if you get to the point where you're sucking too much carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere, mission accomplished, right? Yeah,
1: we've all done our jobs.
0: <laughs> so um, let's let's move on slightly to um, some of the uh, some of the developments in the sector and, and how we see um, direct air capture uh, participating in some of these. So for those uh, who keep an eye on the sector, there's a, a burgeoning uh, voluntary market for emissions removals, and that can uh, characterize anything from a corporate who's trying to deliver a net zero plan committing to a lot of tree planting all the way up to investing in early stage r d where would you say DAC uh sits direct air capture sits in that voluntary market currently um and what what are your views on the scalability of dac in a voluntary market
1: so we love the oxford's net zero um aligned offsetting principles that they talk about this General term, um, offset is used very broadly today. It can refer to avoidance, it can refer to reductions, it can refer to short-lived removals or long-lived removals. And the principles say that by 2050, the only offset that should be allowable because it's net zero aligned are permanent permanent removals. And that's what we do with direct air capture, permanent removals. Um, There's a transition to get there. So at the moment, we're, we're supply constrained. Um, could everybody switch 100% of their portfolios today to, to negative emissions? Um, no. Um, so there has to be a mix to get there. So we like to think about a, a portion, of if that offset coming from permanent remo- removals today, going, going to that 100%. Um, we, we see the voluntary market is growing. It's great to see how many corporate commitments are coming out. We've been following them for the last decade or so, and it's fair to say the curve is quite exponential. Mm-hmm. Um, also being matched by country commitments, um, so, so fantastic. Um, I think it, it's critical to realise for large-scale removals that you could face a chicken and egg problem. Before you build these plants, do direct air capture you need to have evidence of uh of, of revenue returns how are the how are the plant developers going to make their money and then you have corporates that want these high quality permanent removals but how are you going to get them without the plants so you mm-hmm. have a chicken and egg situation so carbon engineering has been thinking about that chicken and egg situation and we have launched a product a, a carbon removal service which aims to solve that and it allows corporates to reserve their place in a queue for a plant being built in return for a small down payment that will help finance a plant. So yeah we, we see that moving, we see that growing.
0: Excellent so when you, um, you you've been very good so far and I'm not speaking specifically about carbon engineering but I'm going to invite you to do so now because it's it's this is not something that's um, you're hoping to do in the future is it this is something that you are screwing things together now and, you know, boots are on the ground doing work. So I wondered if you could tell us a little bit about Carbon Engineering's journey today, what's happening in, in North America and Europe.
1: Yeah, so we're headquartered in British Columbia, um, a place called Squamish, very beautiful in the mountains. I was there a couple of weeks ago, did some hiking. Yeah, um, it was, Carbon Engineering was founded in 2009 um, by David Keith. And the philosophy of the company was Really, scientists tell us billions of tons of CO2 are going to have to be captured from the atmosphere. So, how do you get to billions? Well, you really want to start at millions. So the the question became, how do you deploy million-ton scale facilities for direct air capture in the 2020s? And that's really how the company grew out. Mm -hmm. So, since 2009, we've been running a pilot plant um, over in British Columbia. now being uh, decommissioned and we're in the process of commissioning, right next door, an innovation centre. That innovation centre is focused on the next generation of direct air capture. So we don't stand still, we continue innovating. So an R&D centre. And then that's really what we're doing on advanced development. And then we license our technology. We realise that uh, we, as a fairly small company, cannot solve climate change alone. We're going to need to work in partnership. So our partners over in the US are 1.5, they Mm -hmm. are a subsidiary of Oxy Low Carbon Ventures Um, and we're working with them on deploying a megaton scale facility in the Permian Basin. Um, We're currently just over now 100,000 engineering hours into that engineering design Um, and we're expecting construction to start uh, soon and the the operational date of the plant is targeted for 2024. Um similarly, over in the UK, we're licensing our technology to store Uh We have plans in the, the northeast of Scotland to build a plant that would be 0.5 to, to 1 megaton. Um, and we're targeting 2026 operations for that. So we're currently in what we call pre-feed, which is the the first stage of detailed engineering. I think I said feed before but I should I should qualify that that is the sort of um, latter stage of detailed engineering and um, before you start constructing a plant. Mm-hmm.
0: Thank you very much and thank you very much for saying Storrega before I had to try and pronounce it and guess. Um, mm-hmm. So just tell me a little bit about the siting of those facilities then you, t- you said the Permian Basin in North East, presumably there's got to be that there's behind that location process so can you just explain that a little bit further
1: Yes. Yeah, so the two plants that i've spoken about are focused on those negative emissions and um, my answer would be different if we're doing products mm-hmm. um but the the most important thing when you're doing negative emissions is can you transport and store that co2 so where do you have depleted oil fields where do you have um the potential we, we saline aquifers, but where where is that potential to store underground? Mm-hmm. Direct air capture can capture any emission, anytime, anywhere, so the best place to put a plant is as close as possible to those storage sites. The second sighting factor is the availability of renewable power, um, and I mean, take as an example that the Permian Basin, it, it's sunny, it's fairly windy. Um, take Northeast Scotland, there's a lot of offshore wind, so that's really what drives um, where you look at an initial plant location. And um, the, the, the other factor is perhaps less physical, but more in, in, in your camp um, and that's supportive policy. Yeah. So it, is, is that jurisdiction a leader in its climate policy? Is it thinking about how you create a business for those trying to clear up the skies?
0: Yeah. So that, I mean, thank you as well, because that's a, that's an opening for my uh, next question, because clearly um, there's no commodity currently associated with um, just taking it out of the air and putting it in the ground. So we need to think clearly about um, how companies might get paid for doing such a thing. And I've touched on one already in a voluntary market in that someone, some corporate with a net zero commitment is able to do that. But I wonder if you'd be able to expand on, um processes of getting to scale beyond um, beyond that voluntary market, what kind of policy supports do you think are useful um, in different jurisdictions?
1: Yeah, so the, the, um, the voluntary market for us, we think is incredibly important. It's demand signalling. It's showing that corporates are willing to go above and beyond. Um, will it build uh, thousands of plants? Let, let's see, I think it's really important that regulation um, is being spoken about at the same time. If, like you said, direct air capture, its sole purpose is to remove CO2 from the atmosphere. So there needs to be a value associated with that. Um, You know, we we pay people to clean our streets. We pay people to take away our rubbish. We pay people to clean um, clean water. We should be also (laughs) creating that value for, for cleaning up the atmosphere. Um I'm I'm wondering how much how much detail to go into here, but I think um I I, I think maybe if I take the, the the EU as an example where we have the the ETS which is putting a, a price on carbon through through a cap and trade scheme, but you have that price on carbon. The question is it, can that price be sufficient to to support a full toolkit of climate solutions to come online at the same time. Mm-hmm. So currently, it's supporting a lot of reduction, um, which is incredibly important. But you know, scientists are telling us that removals need to happen at the same time as reduction. So how can schemes like that ETS be expanded to incorporate um, incorporate removals? Another example over in the US. Um, the Californian low carbon fuel standard allows you to generate credits for doing direct air capture and, and sequestration through, through that policy. What they're saying over there, the Californians, is effectively one plus minus one equals zero. So to not combust the, the carbon and create the carbon dioxide in the first place is equivalent to combusting and then permanently removing. Mm-hmm. So I think it's it's these, it's this kind of thinking about what, what policies exist today that could support removals? Um, and there were also many thinkers um, around what, what new policies could be could be adopted as well. but I, I profess to not being, uh, not being a policy, not being a policy expert myself, but being more of a direct air capture
0: expert. Quite. And Tom, Tom has a question, please come in.
2: Yeah, I would just like to add in on this point, uh, became aware of this uh, policy, LECLA, Low Embodied uh, Carbon, um, I can't remember the full acronym, I'm sorry. Um, Low Embodied Carbon Concrete Leadership Act that came in in New York. Uh, And so this is to create a market incentive for sequestering carbon into uh, construction materials at concrete. Um, And so just wanted to ask you, Amy, about um, where you see their opportunities for growth in terms of kind of driving demand for carbon? I, I, I don't really know, like, how how much that demand could grow and could that change the landscape in terms of where DAC is practiced um, by moving away from, you know, um, sort of geo sequestration sites. And, and basically what products you see or are hopeful of, of growing and sort of expanding the demand.
1: Yeah, the fundamentals you want in a supportive policy are a sufficient carbon price. You also want the clear differentiation between the source of the CO2. So I think, fan- I, I don't know this policy in New York specifically, fa- fantastic if there's incentivization for um, f- for capturing the CO2 and storing it. it. It's fundamentally different if that CO2 has come from, um, come from fossil fuels, so via an industrial process, or whether it's come from the atmosphere. Um, the first is a reduction you're stopping it entering the atmosphere the second is a removal you're removing what's already there so that's the second principle to differentiate between the two um, so that's what we look for in in supportive policy um, in terms of products um, i think it's fair to say that an early market has been sustainable aviation fuels because there are those there are those fuels policies that look at carbon intensity and also I think for aviation because it's a hard to decarbonize um industry. Um, with 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 products, um you don't necessarily have the same level of regulation at the moment about what that source of carbon is. I I I can see movement towards it coming and um, people who know more about this space than me have increasingly started talking about about what's coming. Um, I think when we get to a net zero world we we need to be sourcing co2 from the atmosphere and if we can do that through taking it and firmly locking it into the products that we use like like concrete like other building materials then um certainly a critical part of the journey to net zero
0: I mean, for for us at the moment, it's quite an exciting time in the development of a new market because all of these different policy tools, mech- mechanisms and regulations are still on the table. It's it's not that there has been a decision made, right, this is the way we're going to do emissions removal from now on. So we get the chance to learn from renewables and we get the chance to learn from other sectors. So we should really take that. Um, and this, this process is part of that. I wanted to ask, um, we, we're trying to be kind enough to our listeners to allow them to do this on a commute, but... Um, What I wanted to give you the chance to do is uh, reflect on any areas that I haven't asked about, anywhere that you think the debate needs to move on or improve or any of the technology that you think is the the fantastic next thing around the corner. What is it that I haven't asked about in, in the direct air capture space that you'd like to air?
1: I think we've covered most topics. Um, I think we focused more probably on the negative emissions side than the, um, than the sustainable aviation fuel side, for example. Um, I we, we spoke about citing factors for direct air capture and sequestration. I think I'd say for the um, for the sustainable aviation fuel side, that renewable power it is critical as well. So I'm really encouraged to see lots of countries now talking about their journeys and their targets for decarbonising grids. Um, perhaps what we haven't mentioned is, I've talked about the transport and storage of CO2. Um, now, especially across Europe, that's likely to be shared infrastructure with industrial sources. So um, the, the build out of those clusters to be able to do it is absolutely critical to bring mm. in direct air capture online. So technology might be ready, but you need the transport and storage as well.
0: Um. You mentioned industrial clusters for the uk most of that is is along the eastern side of the country um particularly around deplete, um fossil fuel fields in the north sea what does it look like what what does a dac um a dac pathway look like in terms of volume of plants because they will be they will be clustered around this uh infrastructure whether well, it's not just something we can dot all over so what is the land take? What is the kind of spatial planning questions that you have to ask when you think about scaling this technology up?
1: Yeah, so the in in the UK the um, the scenarios our climate change committee has has talked about takes us anywhere from fifty eight to one hundred and twelve megatons of removals per year by twenty fifty. Um, I think. Some, some of, there are different solutions. If, if we think about direct air capture in, in the range of sort of 20 to, to 40 megatons of that, which is very in line with the UK's net zero strategy that, that came out last week. Um, so so I've, I've talked about us deploying megaton scale plants. So you know you can think about that as being 20 to 40 megaton scale plants. Probably will go larger um, over time. So maybe not as many individual plants Mm -hmm. Um, for a a megaton, so a million tons. um, The land footprint is in the region of 85 to a hundred acres. Now that didn't mean much to me when I first heard it. Um, So when I was Googling and trying to put it into something that I could understand, um, you could fit about 10 of these plants in New York Central Park. And for me, Central Park was something I could identify with and imagine seeing. Um, so, so, yeah, that, that's for a million, um, a, a million tons. And I think another parallel that you can draw with that is each megaton scale plant does approximately the same removal as 40 million trees. Yeah. Um, if you think about those 40 million trees, the, the, the land use is, is a few hundred Times times larger.
0: Right. Okay. So that that's what that was, is helpful to get to. Um, you you didn't go into football pitches, well though. Um, but uh, for those of us, football
1: pitches. It should have football Forty
0: football pitches,
1: I believe, but I don't play football, so.
0: Okay. <laughs> and we wouldn't have known whether it was American football or soccer, so never mind. Uh, but yeah. So we've got we've got a land take which is substantial, but um, in relation to other emissions removal technologies, is Probably one of the lower f- footprints, and uh, for me from the Humber region, it does, you know, it does signal jobs, it does signal growth, it does signal net zero industrial clusters. Um, so there's there's a, an economic development story to be told there as well, because it's not, you know, not all these plants are not expected yeah. to be um, in the middle of nowhere. They have expected. No,
1: and and I, I think yeah. Th- not to talk specifics about numbers of jobs that there are thousands associated with each plant but I think it's important that they are supporting the green transition so again coming back to that McKinsey study they looked at traditional oil and gas jobs um, in in the UK what percentage overlap is there with, uh, with your permanent negative emissions, so your, your BECS, and your direct air capture we've been talking about? And they found a 70 to 90 percent overlap. So it is really about transitioning those jobs from the old oil and gas in, into the new. Yeah. Uh,
0: and one of my um, hobby horses that I like to ride is that a just transition when it comes to jobs really does need to focus on actually existing individuals as well as the kind of net jobs balance. Amy, thank you very much indeed for participating in the Carbon Matters podcast. I think, um, thinking about my uh, notional commute that people might have got out of their cars and remained compelled and started making tea um, just, as, uh, just as this finishes. But thank you very much indeed for participating I've enjoyed it hugely. I can see that Tom has, if he doesn't mind me speaking for him, and uh, the Carbon Removal Network and the Carbon Removal Centre is very grateful for your time. So I'll pause the recording now and say thank you very no, much. No, thank
1: you, thank you very much. I really enjoyed it too.
0: Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Carbon Matters. And we look forward to bringing you more insights, discussions and developments from the fascinating field of carbon removal. In the meantime, if you'd like to find out more on today's topic, give feedback or get in touch, then please click or swipe on over to our website or other social media platforms, details of which can
2: be found in the show notes.